Today's sermon is titled, The One True Hero. The One True Hero. So back in 2014, I was interviewing for a job at the Village Church in Dallas, Texas. And the man who, who would become my, my boss in the future, his name was Jared. Uh, Jared began asking me a series of questions. And one of his final questions, this is what he asks everyone, is, is who are your heroes? And then he divided that question into kind of three different things. He said, who are your real life heroes, the people you know and you've been around? Who are your historical heroes? And then who are your fictional heroes? And so I began immediately processing in my mind, I'd never really thought through that question, who are my heroes? So I considered, who are my historical heroes first? So I grew up devouring everything I could on World War II. And in particular, I loved Winston Churchill, and I still to this day read everything written on Winston, Winston Churchill. So I just kind of said, hey, Winston Churchill's my historical hero, which was a good thing because Jared is just about the most British American dude I've ever met in my life. So he was super stoked on that one. And then I moved into my real life heroes. Who are my real life heroes? And I began to trace some, some people I grew up with and my family, some, some of the, the men who had discipled me when I first came to faith. And I said, you know, here are some names of those people. And then it got into the fictional area and I hadn't read much fiction at that point and I still don't to this day. So I didn't have any answers there, which was bad news because Jared loves all things superheroes and DC and Mar Marvel. And I think those two are meshed now and Superman and Batman and all these people. If I would have said Superman, I would have been hired about three months earlier, but I didn't really have an answer there. Um, but the question began rolling around in the back of my mind, and it still does to this day. And instead of the question, who are your heroes, I began to ask myself the question, what is the definition of a hero? How do we get our heroes? Why do we label some people heroes? And so if you want an answer to that question, here's the perfect answer from the sitcom, The Office. Season one, Mr. Brown says this. Now this is a simple acronym, HERO. At Diversity Today, we believe it's very easy to be a hero. All you need are honesty, empathy, respect, and open-mindedness. Dwight Schrute, excuse me, I'm sorry, but that's not what it takes to be a hero. Okay, well, what is a hero to you? A hero kills people, people that wish him harm. A hero is part human and part supernatural. A hero is born out of a childhood trauma or out of disaster and mu that must be avenged. Uh, I think you're thinking of a superhero. Now, Dwight Schrute says a hero is someone that's got to avenge a childhood trauma and kills people, all these kind of things, right? And this is comical and this is laughing, but truly, what is it that makes a hero? Is it someone that's a genius? Is it someone that's powerful? Is it someone uh, that has control? Is it someone that's famous? Is it someone that's very inventive? Is it someone who changed the whole world or is it someone who changed your world? Is a hero someone who leads his family, her family, or leads a country? What is it that makes a hero? And we could probably go down the line of history and label some people heroes, right? We can look at Nelson Mandela and we can look at Mother Teresa or George Washington or Babe Ruth. And we can, if you're into sports, right? And what you can do is probably draw out some traits, some personality traits or actions and make a list of things that all these people shared in common. And from there you could say, well, this is what it takes to make a hero. But what I wanna submit to you today is that Jesus is the one true hero. He is the only hero. He is the only one worthy to be followed, worthy to be admired, worthy of our worship. He is the only person that is worthy to be labeled a hero. And here's the thing about our heroes. 
We consider our real life heroes, right? These people we look up to. But what happens? We put them up on this pedestal. We admire them. We love them. And and then we get closer to them. And as we get closer to them, what happens? We begin to see all their flaws. We begin to see all their humanity on display. We get to see that they're not all that impressive because none of us are all that impressive. And then we take them off the pedestal and we're deeply disappointed in them. This is what happens when we turn humans into heroes. The closer they get, the less heroic they become. But here's the thing about Jesus. The opposite is true of him. Jesus, the closer he gets, the more heroic he becomes. The closer we examine Jesus, the closer we look at Jesus, the closer we diagnose Jesus, the closer we walk to Jesus, the more impressive he becomes, the more admirable he becomes, the more famous he becomes, the more worthy of our submission and worship Jesus becomes because he is the only true hero. Now, here's what Mark is doing at the closing of of Mark chapter 14. He is showing us the trial of Jesus and the condemnation of Jesus. But I believe one of Mark's intentions in this passage is to tell us a story. And out of that story, he wants us to see a few different characters on display. And what Mark wants to do is have Jesus pop off the page to us as the one true hero in comparison to the other cast of characters. He wants us to see how fallen and weak and feeble and human Peter and the high priest and the scribes and the court system, how how all of those things are less than heroic and Jesus himself pops off the page as the one true hero. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at those different characters and we're going to look at Jesus and we're going to see that Jesus is the one true hero. So here's the main point. Jesus is the one true hero because he redeems and restores us. He is the one true hero because he redeems and restores us. And there's only two parts to today's sermon, but don't hear short when I say two parts, okay? We're hanging in there, right? Two parts. First part, the need for a hero. The second part, the hero we need. The need we have for a hero and the hero we need. All right, so first part, let's look at the need for a hero, the need we have for a hero. All right, so when I was in class, I took a course called Women's Studies. Now, It was a requirement, and in no way did it live up to any of my expectations. As a matter of fact, Katie and I were talking about it yesterday. She's like, we were dating. I remember how much you hated that class. I'm like, yeah, it was pretty bad. I passed, though. One of the more jarring experiences of that class was the first night of the course. When this woman walks out, her professor so-and-so, we'll call her, professor so-and-so walks out, and she began to label herself as about the most radical feminist I had ever known in my life. Now, when I'm saying feminism, I'm not talking about just kind of everyday garden variety of feminism. Women are whole people, they should vote, they should, they should be, you know, have a say and a voice. Absolutely, we affirm that. We are for that. And by the way, let me just, as an aside, nothing in human history is as pro-woman than the Christian faith. 
You can do a study of history, and secular scholars have done this. Nothing is as pro-woman as the Christian faith. Look at how Persians treated women. Look at how Romans treated women. Look at how Japanese and Egyptian empires treated women, enslaved them, turned them into nothing but people who bear the next generation for us, say they don't have a voice, say they don't have a vote, say they are not whole people. Every empire has done this until Christianity came. And then when Christ came and revival came and the gospel came, women were given the opportunity to work and to vote and to get education and to be something more than just sex slaves for the rulers of the empire. Now, that's not the point of this. All I'm saying is what you've probably heard spun in, in, in you know, mainstream media is that evangelicals are nothing but bigots, racist, and sexist. It's not true. Just look at the evidence. Not the point. This woman comes on stage, this radical feminist, right? And she begins ranting. I don't need anything. I don't need no one. I don't need no man. Like the, all the canned lines we've come to expect from that type of person. So she goes on this big old long rant and everyone in the class is kind of like jarred and taken aback by this. And, and, and here's the deal. I'm me, okay? which love it or hate it, take it or leave it, whatever. I'm me with all the rough edges. I'm mostly okay with it. I like it. I like how God wired me. So she finishes this rant and I kind of just quietly raise my hand. And mind you, I'm the embodiment of everything this woman hates. I'm white, I'm blonde, I'm blue hair, I'm tall, I'm athletic. She would come to find out I'm an evangelical Christian that plays sports. The embodiment of everything she hates. I raise my hand. What? So what do you need? I stepped on one there. I dropped a grenade in that class and she looks at me with utter hatred and says, I don't need anything and I especially don't need you. And I'm like, all right. So we kind of went to war the rest of the semester and it was pretty fun, if I'm being honest with you. I love that kind of stuff. Uh, she probably hated me for it. I passed the class, we're good, I got the degree to prove it. But what's going on there is this woman, what she's ranting about is an ideology that we have been steeped in our entire lives. This ideology is called the ideology of the sovereign self. I am sovereign. I'm in control of my own life. I'm autonomous. I am free from everything. I am perfect. I have no faults or flaws, and I don't need anything. This ideology of the sovereign self for her just came out in this form of feminism. We all have it. Every single one of us have swam in this our entire lives. Whether we label it you know, politics, or we label it money, or we label it our job, all of us believe we are sovereign, we are free, we are perfect, and we have no need. Now, I say that to say, when this woman was ranting, everyone in this class, all that we saw, we saw right through all that, we saw her deep insecurity on display. We knew she had need, we knew she had faults, we knew she had flaws, I just tried to expose it. No one else was willing to do it. Now, this is true of all of us. We all believe we're sovereign. We know we're not. We all believe we're free. We know we're not. We all believe we're perfect. We know we're not. We all believe we have no need, and we all believe, we all know, we, we do. We have deep needs. We are deeply insecure. 
right? We just try to mask it and cover it because we're, we think we're stronger than we actually are. But here's the truth. Listen, take the mask off. We all see right through it. You see right through my mask, I see right through yours. So why don't we just be honest? Why don't we just, Jesus already outed us on the cross as failures and frauds. Why don't we just partner with him and then take the mask off and say, yeah, I do have need. I am broken, I am fallen. Now here's what we're gonna see. In this text, we're gonna see the cast of characters that are us, the ones that have need. So look back to the text, Mark chapter 14, verse 53 through 55. And they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. All right, so Jesus has been betrayed. He's been arrested. Now he's being put on his first trial. Now, now just as an aside, what's gonna proceed from here on out in the rest of Mark is illegal. Here's what I mean by that. The Jewish trial that he is being put on in this chapter is illegal. According to Old Testament law, everything they're doing, trying someone on the eve of the Sabbath, trying someone at nighttime is illegal evil and it's illegal. It's unjust according to Old Testament laws. It's also unjust according to Jewish customs. But these, this, these men were so bloodthirsty to get Jesus condemned that they were breaking their own laws to get there. And then as Jesus will go on a Roman trial, everything that happens there is illegal. The Romans are breaking their own customs and their own laws, trying someone on the weekend in order to get Jesus condemned and get him put on a cross. So what's happening here is that the, the, the scribes and the high priests and the chief priests, what they're doing is they are creating injustice towards Jesus in order to get to their own ends, to get to the point that they want Jesus to be seen as a blasphemous fraud and to be hung from a cross. They are breaking their own laws and he is facing an illegal trial. Now I wanna ask the question, in the middle of this, where's Peter? Where's Peter? Peter, the zealous one. Peter, the faithful one. Peter, the one who's gonna lop someone's ear off when they try to take Jesus. Peter, the one who at the Last Supper is declaring before everyone, I'll never deny you, I'll never betray you. Where's Peter when all this is happening? As Jesus is facing injustice, as he's facing an illegal trial, Peter's chilling by the fire with some Roman guards. He's begun to shrink back and distance himself from Jesus. Why? Because he knows if he identifies with Jesus, he's going to face the same trial that Jesus is facing, and he is terrified of it. Here's what we see in this first section. We see the injustice we all create towards Jesus, and we see the fact that when persecution and pain comes, we begin to shrink back and distance ourselves from faithfulness to Jesus. Keep going with me. Verse 56 through 59. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. 
And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. We see right there that, that the scribes and the chief priests, they are bearing false witness against Jesus. Now, that should cause some light bulbs in your head. That is breaking the ninth commandment. This is lying, this is evil, and this is to be punished. They are breaking the ninth commandment, their very own ninth commandment. And here's the fascinating thing about this. It says twice in those verses that their false witness didn't even agree with each other. These men were too dumb to coordinate their lies. So they're all sitting there in a court system. He's saying one thing, he's saying another, and their own false witness was contradictory, which should have been enough for him to be like, well, this doesn't seem to be true. Let's, let's let this guy walk free. But again, we see that they are lying about Jesus, lying about his person, his work, his actions, and what he has said. They are breaking the ninth commandment, and this is worthy to be punished. Keep moving with me. Verses 63 and 64. Jesus was just asked, are you the Messiah? And he says, I am. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. So Jesus claims to be the Messiah. They break the ninth commandment. They go through this unlawful trial. They go through this unjust process. And Jesus is declared guilty and blasphemous and deserving of death. And these men are celebrating. Why? Well, we call this the ends justify the means. This is what we say. They got the end result they wanted and the means that they took did not matter to them. Lying, injustice, an unfair trial, someone who is innocent being declared guilty. They didn't care who was put on, or they cared, it was Jesus. They didn't care how the process went because they wanted him to be declared guilty so bad they would do whatever it takes. Compromise their own character, break their own laws, lie about Jesus, disobey the ninth commandment. Why? The ends justify the means. Now, God's word has something different to say about that. God's word says that's called justifying your sin. That is sin. That's depravity and evil and wickedness that we've read so far. And according to the scriptures, every one of those actions by the chief priests and the scribes and the high priest was deserving of their own condemnation, their own imprisonment, and their own death. They were sinners and depraved and wicked, and they were due the punishment that was given to Jesus. And they were attempting to justify their own sin. Sound familiar? Right? We lie and we manipulate Right? We, we, we try to work our way up the chain at work. We, di we dishonor others and we steal and we lie. Why? Got to get that promotion. It's okay. The ends justify the means. We manipulate those in our lives to get the gain that we want. The ends justify the means. We sweep our sin under the rug. We throw it behind us. We act like it doesn't exist. Why? The ends justify the means. And God's word is simply saying to us, no, you're just trying to justify your own sin. And you can't do that. You can't forgive your sin. You can't free yourself from sin. You can't make yourself alive from sin. You are dead in your sins and your trespasses. We are trying desperately to justify our own sin. Now jump down to verse 65 with me. 
And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. So this is the moment where Jesus begins to get mocked, to get spit upon, to get beaten, to get stabbed, to get drugged through the dirt, and he will eventually be hung from a cross. They are mocking him the whole way, saying, prophesy, right? They're, they're tempting him. They're trying to test him to, to do what he says he can do. All the while, they're just beating him. Now, none of us here have ever physically assaulted Jesus, but every one of us has spiritually assaulted Jesus. Every one of us has dishonored his presence in our lives. Every one of us have belittled Jesus by deliberately disobeying his commands. Every one of us have mocked Jesus, have spit upon Jesus, have assaulted his presence in our lives, have ignored him, have turned our backs upon him, have tried to live free and independent of him in utter disobedience to the commands we know we're called to do. None of us have ever physically assaulted Jesus, but every single one of us are those guards who have spiritually assaulted and mocked and beat Jesus in our sin. Now, jump, jump down to verse 66 with me. We're gonna read the saddest episode, one of the saddest episodes in the scriptures. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed and the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Again, Peter, the confident one, the zealous one, the one of the original 12 that we would have never to expect to fail, fails. And he fails in stunning and high-profile ways. We see Peter's denial and betrayal of Jesus. And as a result, he has invoked a curse upon himself. And again, before we point fingers at Peter and laugh and say, what a failure that guy is. Let us just use the life of Peter as a display of us in the scriptures. Peter is nothing more than us on these pages. All of us willingly, knowingly, deliberately denying Jesus. Every time we sin, we are denying Jesus. Every time we disobey, we are belittling Jesus. Every time we refuse to follow God and his commands, we are Peter. This is who we are. And how does the chapter end? Peter is broken down and weeping because he is viscerally aware of his need. Are you? 
Are we broken down? Are we aware of our need? Are we aware of our brokenness? Are we aware of our betrayal? Are we aware of our sinfulness? Are we aware of our wickedness? Are we aware of our depravity? Are we aware of the darkness that exists within every single one of us? Are we aware that we're Peter or do we in some kind of confused fashion think that we're Jesus? You're not. We're Peter. Failures, broken, weeping. Every single one of us have made a mockery of God's grace to us. Every single one of us have tried to justify our sin before God and others. Every one of us have lied to ourselves and to others about Jesus. Every single one of us have denied Jesus. We are in need of a hero and we should be broken down and weeping like Peter in this passage. This is who we are. We need a hero. But here's the good news. Jesus is the hero we need. Point number two, Jesus is the hero that we need. Now, in all of those portions of text that I just read, I'm not gonna reread them, but we're gonna go back through them and we're gonna look at where's Jesus in the middle of this as he's facing the court, as the Sanhedrin's lying about him, as Peter is betraying him. What is Jesus doing? Where is he? Well, first, as as he's standing in this courtroom facing an unjust trial and Peter is beginning to distance himself, chilling by a fire with some Roman guards, what is Jesus doing? As Peter distances himself from Jesus, Peter or Jesus is drawing nearer to his own punishment. Jesus stands firm as we shrink back. As we distance ourselves from Jesus, he draws nearer to us. As we walk in faithlessness, he is all the more faithful. As Peter chills by a fire pursuing his own safety, Jesus doesn't flee the courtroom and puts his own neck on the line. Jesus is the one who will be declared guilty though he's innocent and will be declared innocent though we're guilty. As Peter shrinks back, Jesus stands in unjust trial in our place. As the high priest and the Sanhedrin bear false witness and they emit lies about Jesus, what does Jesus do? Jesus does nothing but tell the truth. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself is the truth and he is the truth that will set us free. You see, Jesus in the scripture never lies. And and here's here's the thing, we all know truth hurts, right? Faithful are the wounds from a friend and Jesus is our friend who wounds us with his truth. He tells us the truth about ourselves. He says, you are a sinner. You are wicked, depraved, and you can't save yourself. You are worthy of death. This is the truth Jesus tells as people lie about him. But he tells a greater truth about himself. He says, though you are great sinners, I am a greater savior. Though you try to flee from me, I hunt you down and make you mine. Though you can't revive yourself, I'll give you the gift of revival. He tells us the truth about us, and he tells us a greater truth about himself. He is a great savior. As we, like this this Sanhedrin, try to justify our own sin, the ends justify the means. We are justifying our sin. What does Jesus do? Jesus justifies sinners. 
We try to make our sin right by explaining it away, by saying, we're the victims. I had no choice. I had to do it. We're trying to justify our own sin. What does Jesus do? Jesus comes and he is declared guilty in our place and he dies the death we deserve. He bleeds the blood that should come from our bodies and it's that very blood that cleanses us and washes us white as snow. So he clothes us in his righteousness. We try to justify our sin. Jesus justifies sinners, which is good news for you and me, because we can't justify ourselves. He already has. And here's the fascinating thing about the justifying work of Jesus. You are literally clothed forever in the righteous robe of Jesus Christ. So when the father sees you, he doesn't see your resume. Your resume is nonsense. He doesn't see your past, present, or future. It's all wicked and filthy rags. What does God see? the very righteous resume of Jesus Christ. When he sees you, if you are in Christ, he sees Jesus. We try to justify our sin. Jesus justifies sinners. And what does Jesus say? The one thing he says, he's confronted. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Savior? Are you the Son of the blessed? He says, I am. I am. Those two little words should pique our interest. They should draw attention to the Old Testament in Exodus when God comes to Moses and he says, I am. He speaks to Moses. And when he's saying that, he's saying, I am who I am. I am outside of time. I am eternal. I am omnipotent. I'm all powerful and I can do all things. I am who I am and I will be who I will be. Jesus multiple times in the gospel says, I am the I am. He claims to be God in the flesh, which is good news because only God can save sinners. And in the Gospel of John, he makes seven I am statements to prove how good and powerful he is. He first says, I am the bread of life. As the Israelites are wandering from Egypt back to the promised land, they are daily given manna or bread from heaven. This daily sustenance, this daily guidance, this daily provision from the very hand of God. Jesus is saying, I am that bread. I am the only one who can sustain you. I am the only one who can provide for you. I am the only one who can guide you through the wilderness on your pilgrimage back to me. He is the bread of life. He says, I am the light of the world. In this, in this scene, Jesus heals a blind man who had been blind his entire life, could see nothing but darkness. And Jesus, for the first time, opens his eyes and he sees light. In the scriptures, darkness is equated to death and Satan and the dominion of darkness. Light is related to Jesus and life and the kingdom of God. Jesus, in healing this blind man, doesn't just heal him physically, giving him sight, but he takes his feet from the dominion of darkness and gives him eternal life. He is the light of the world, and he is the only one that can transfer us from darkness to light. He says, I am the door. In this one, he is talking about a sheep pen. 
And a sheep pen would have been a wooden structure and sheep are dumb and not athletic. So when they were locked out of the sheep pen, they couldn't jump over the fence to get back in. They would just wander away. In order for the sheep to get into the pen, the shepherd would have to open the door or open the gate so the sheep could waltz right on in there. Jesus is saying he is the gate and that sheep pen is the kingdom of God. We are sheep that have wandered away from the pen who can't get ourselves in. Here's the truth. You can't get yourself into the kingdom. You can't save yourself. You can't work your way into righteousness. We all know this. But Jesus says, I am the door and I'm swung open so you're invited in. Just walk through me. Come on in. You're welcome here. He says, I am the good shepherd. Right? And oftentimes when we think shepherd, we have this stupid picture of a weak and timid man who just kind of has this job that's nothing. Shepherds were rugged. They were men. They had dirt under their fingernails. They had scabs on their knees. They worked hard. And what they did was they walked around with a rod, and that rod served two purposes. As wolves and enemies would come and try to steal the sheep, they would fend off the enemy with the rod. And then as the sheep would wander away from the shepherd, they would use the rod to break the legs of the sheep to keep them in line so they couldn't wander away. Jesus says he is that shepherd. He is the one who shields us from the enemy. As Satan tries to attack us, Jesus with his rod swings back and he's a lot more powerful than you are. Jesus is your defender against the enemy. And not just that, as we begin to wander away, fickle little beings we are, what does Jesus do? He graciously breaks our legs so we don't wander away. The Christian does not walk with a strut. The Christian walks with a limp because Jesus has graciously given it to us. He is the good shepherd. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus literally, physically, bodily overcame the grave and he lives now and forevermore and he freely gifts us that resurrection so not even death can defeat us. We will live forevermore with Jesus. He is the resurrection and the life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is not one way amongst many ways. That's nonsense. Jesus is the only way. He is the path we walk to life and to meaning and to purpose and to hope and all the things our hearts are yearning for. Jesus is the way and the only way to true life. And then he says, I am the true vine. The vine gives sustaining power to the branches helps the branches bear fruit. We cannot bear fruit on our own. As we abide in the vine, we are given sustaining power to daily live for Jesus and because of Jesus and to the glory of Jesus because he is the true vine and apart from him, we can do nothing. He is the true vine. Jesus ultimately, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, is beaten to death. But in that happening, he actually beats death. The blows that Satan thought he was dealing to Jesus is Jesus actually just dealing the final blow to Satan. He is the hero that we need. He is the I am. What you need is not a better life now. What you need is not whatever you think your circumstantial change is. What you need is the I am. What you need is the bread of life. What you need is the door. What you need is the shepherd. What you need is the resurrection and life. What you need is the way, truth, and life. What you need is the true vine. What you need is the light of the world. And the good news is Jesus is that hero. Amen. And the closer he gets, 
the more heroic he becomes. Now, let's close like this. Peter denies Jesus three times and pronounces a curse upon himself. One of the saddest episodes in all of scripture. But Jesus, as our hero, turns all sad things untrue. Look at the screen with me, John chapter 21. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to Peter a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to Jesus, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and, you will dr- uh, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go, dying by a cross. This, he said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Three times Peter denies Jesus. Three times Jesus redeems Peter. Three times Peter denies Jesus. Three times Jesus restores Peter. Three times Peter pronounces cursing upon himself. Three times Jesus gives him blessing. Three times Peter denies his calling as a disciple of Jesus. Three times Jesus says, you're my disciple, follow me. Jesus is the one true hero because he is the one who redeems and restores. What is our true need? Our true need is for a redeemer, one who will buy us back into the family of God. We have abandoned the family of God. We have dwelt with Satan. We have dishonored God in our sin. And we need a redeemer who will say, I will pay whatever price to make you mine. And Jesus pays the ultimate price of his life on a cross. And he purchases us back and makes us his. We need a redeemer. And Jesus is the redeemer that we need. He is the powerful one for the powerless. He is the strong one for the weak. He is the provision for the needy. Jesus is the redeemer. And then we need a restorer. And Jesus is the one who restores. We all just went through those nasty windstorms, am I right? And if you live up in Rosina Ranch, you probably lost power, still probably lost power to this point. Who knows up there, right, Ben? Ben, you gotta move down here, bro. Um, Right, so some of us lost power. I didn't, some of you did, lost power in those windstorms. And what happens? The power gets restored and we celebrate. The power comes back on and we celebrate. This is what Jesus does in his restoring work. As Peter has denied Jesus and betrayed Jesus and cursed himself in doing so, he is imminently disqualified. What does Jesus do? He restores him back to qualification. He says, you're mine, feed my sheep and follow me. You are not cursed, but you are blessed. He has restored Peter back to a place of qualification He is the one who lifts the eyes of the downtrodden. He is the one who knows how helpless and hurt we are, that we have all victimized ourselves with our own sin and we have been hurt by the sin of others. And Jesus is the one who says, let me restore you. 
Let me put you back together. Just like Peter, we are aware of how broken and needy we are. We are weeping because of our sin and sin done against us. And what does Jesus do? He takes broken things and he mends them back together. And he turns us into a tapestry of his grace where he shows his power and his mercy and his ability. Now listen, every single one of us believe in this ideology of sovereign self. I'm in control, I'm all powerful, I'm free, and I have no need. Baloney. We all knew it was baloney on my teacher, my professor, whatever. We all know it's baloney when we say it. We need a hero. And the hero that we need is the redeemer and the restorer. So again, I just want to invite you, take the mask off. Quit faking it. Quit acting like you have it together. You don't. I don't. Every one of us is fraying at the edges. Every one of us is hanging on by a thread. Every single one of us has something in the past that still marks us and defines us to this very day. And we can be free from that thing. We can be healed from that thing. Every single one of us has some kind of hidden sin in our heart that we think we can't voice because someone's jaw is gonna drop. Jesus sees it and knows it. Jesus died for that sin. Jesus died to give mercy and grace and forgiveness to that sin. Some of us are going through something in life that's, that's borderline traumatic. Maybe it's some kind of divorce situation. Maybe it's a broken relationship with your family. Maybe it's financial insecurity. Every single one of us has deep need. But again, the change is not circumstantial. Those things changing will leave you just as unsatisfied and broken if you have not redemption and restoration. So instead of looking for circumstantial change, look to Jesus to restore your heart and redeem you back to good standing. He is the hero. And the greatest news about Jesus is he's not a distant hero unwilling to work. He is a near hero who put on flesh and dwelt among us. And he approaches us and he grabs us and he clings to us. And when we're faced He's faithful. And as we abandon him, he chases us down again. And he is the one who is gentle and lowly. So as you do confess those things, as you are honest, as you take the mask off, you're not met with vitriol. You're not met with a, a, a condescending, I told you so. You're not met with a savior who's saying, get it together and come back later. You are met with a savior who died to forgive you and redeem you and restore you and make you whole. So just be honest. So in just a second, we're gonna step into communion, but I just wanna give a little bit of time as we do each week for some silent reflection. What are you gonna do there? What are you gonna do with this? If you're not a believer, let me, let me just, can I just tell you what to do? Repent. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus and find the good savior, the good shepherd, the door, the light of the world, the resurrection and the life. Find the very one that is the hero that you need. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And the second you come to him is the second he dispenses his mercy and grace upon you. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to fake it. You don't have to have it all together. He's ready and able and willing. If you are a believer, 
What are you going to do with this? What is that thing from the past that defines you? What is that sin so deep you won't confess, not even to those closest to you? And how can you in this very moment take the mask off, be honest, and find the very restoration you need? Here's the truth. Our sin eats us from the inside out. Our bones literally wither away when we harbor sin. Jesus is saying, out that sin and find redemption and restoration and wholeness. You need it and I need it. So just take some time to silently reflect and then we'll, we'll partake in the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Though we are great sinners, he is a greater savior. We need a hero. He is the hero we need. By your spirit's power, would you convince us of that? Would you convince us if we are not believers that we desperately need salvation and Jesus and life and hope? If we are believers, would you convince us that as we harbor darkness and we turn our backs upon you, all we are doing is pronouncing the curse of Peter on ourselves and we are breaking ourselves and we are weeping and convince us by your spirit's power that Jesus is the very hero that we need, the one who will redeem us from those things and restore us. We can't convince ourselves. We need you to do it. By your spirit's power, would you do that? Amen.